Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of When Movies Were Good, hosted by myself, Rachel, and my special guest star, Matt. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm good. Finding new ways to cope with lockdown, one, each one more creative than the next. Oh, that's good. That's that's good to hear. Yes, we're sort of halfway through Melbourne's six-week stage for lockdown, so we've got the whole curfew thing happening every night, can only go 5Ks from home just to work and back. Uh, and the pharmacy, the supermarket and a few other places and that's all we're allowed at the moment. So it's nice getting together with Matt. We still do have to do it over Skype because you're not allowed to go and visit anyone else's home at the moment unless, you know, you're living with them already. And uh, so we're still doing it over Skype. So please forgive us if there's any technical issues because we're still working remotely. So we wanted to welcome you to the podcast today. Uh, we are doing our John Steinbeck double, which is The Grapes of Wrath, two very famous films, The Grapes of Wrath, 1940, which was directed by John Ford, and then East of Eden, 1955, directed by Elia Kazan. So these are films that Matt and I have wanted to see for a while. In fact, we were speaking about this on some Facebook group. I sort of tagged Matt into something when they were speaking about The Grapes of Wrath. So were you happy to do these films this week, Matt? Did you get a lot out of seeing them? Very much. It actually covered quite a few bucket lists. Sorry, I'm, I seem to be stammering now. But yes, <laughs> I managed to cover quite a few bucket lists for this episode because not only did I want to increase my John Steinbeck knowledge because I'd only ever read one of his books, which was uh, uh, in um, high school, it was um, Of Mice and Men. Uh, which uh, did set up a lot of um, core themes that we saw here about uh, poor people in the American Midwest and Southern states making a buy in the Depression era. Mm -hmm. But also watching East of Eden, I got to see a James Dean movie for the first time. He's been one of the actors I've wanted to see for quite a bit. And, uh, yes, it, like, I've known his story well. It was quite sad how um, his uh, life and career was cut short so quickly. And uh, finally, a third thing is I wanted to increase the amount of John Ford films I'm seeing, uh, if nothing else, because he was the god that Orson Welles aspired to. Yes, yeah. I Yeah, it actually was a, a good um, coupling of films to do, and I'm glad that we did do it because I'm like you, despite being a fan of classic films, although it had been a long time since I'd actually sat down and started watching any classic films, I'd never actually seen a James Dean movie in its entirety. So this was a first for me as well. So while we're kicking off today, um, we'll just talk a little bit about John Steinbeck. Uh, so he's the reason we've linked these two books together. So John Steinbeck was probably one of the world's most famous authors, definitely in the US. Uh, he was born in 1902 in Salinas, California, which is the area where the majority of his novel works were set, and he died in 1968 in New York City. So The Grapes of Wrath was written in 1939, and East of Eden was wrote, written in 1952. So the film version of Grapes of Wrath was made one year uh, later, and East of Eden was only made a few years after that as well. He also is well known for Of Mice and Men, which is the film, which is the book that you discuss, Matt. So, and I guess his there's a commonality of themes in a lot of his books. It's um, 
you know, the plight of common people, the plight of the working class, you know, their lives relating to fate and injustice. And he was a Pulitzer Prize winner and also a Nobel Prize winner for literature as well. So he had a very long and varied career uh, and also had, you know, and had strong thoughts on some of the films that were made from his books. So I haven't actually read any of his books, but you've read Of Mice and Men, have you, Matt? Yeah, so that's only uh, the only book of his that I've read, and it's uh, very uh, um, emotional, and it uh, shows a lot of the sort of mental health issues you could have imagined uh, going through a lot of people, if nothing else, the constant loneliness you and isolation you would have had moving from spot to spot, because that story centers around two uh, sort of casual farm workers who were sort of picking up work here and there as they could get it. And while most people like them would be spending most of whatever they made um, in the local bar and having to start all over again, these mm-hmm. uh, this pair is uh, trying to save up to get a bit of land to say that is theirs. Right, uh, yes. So it is a, a lot of the struggle of the casual farm labourer uh, trying to keep ahead and uh, find a place where they belong, which we see also in the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, and it's actually very, especially with everything that's going on with the casual work economy and what's happened with the, the virus, not that we really need to keep talking about it, but that's that those themes that he speaks about in his works and also that were explored in the films are very poignant to what's happening in the world today at the moment. A lot of people who work casually can relate to that now. And perhaps another aspect which I'm not sure if Steinbeck necessarily would have thought in those terms, but he does bring to the fore the huge problems of environmental care, because for those who don't know, the Grapes of Wrath centers around the Dust Bowl, which was a a huge artificial natural disaster that occurred in uh, around Oklahoma and a lot of farming states, especially around the 1930s and it happened very quickly and it was completely artificial because with new machinery and not to mention improved fertilizers farmers were suddenly able in those areas to cultivate a lot more land a lot quicker and they also had an incentive to cut through a lot of natural grassland but partially because they didn't they didn't want to know about any other um, possibilities of the things that could uh, happen as a consequence of what they were doing, but they uh, caused a lot of topsoil to become very loose in dry weather very quickly, and so a lot of farmland turned overnight into desert when the weather turned bad, and you had whole communities suddenly uh, having to run away into other parts of the state, and this is a time when a lot of large sections of farming communities were quite often not that well educated, so it was rather hard for them to assimilate into a lot of more industrialised sections of America. All right, that's actually quite interesting. I I only had a little bit of knowledge about it, but that's actually quite interesting. So it caused basically a man-made natural disaster of sorts, this sort of Mm -hmm. embracing of technology that they didn't fully understand how to use. Um, Definitely, and we can definitely tie it into a lot of uh, problems we have now, like bee populations, uh, climate change. Yes. There are all factors that we need to consider where we need to think about not just our financial ends, but how we can take care of 
the earth for the future. And as we've seen in the last few months, every section of um, every economic power is uh, linked at some point. No one is completely safe. Yeah, that's right. So we'll go in and discuss Grapes of Wrath in a bit more detail now. So the film was made in 1940, uh, directed by John Ford, as we mentioned. Also written by Nunnally Johnson, who wrote the sequel to, to this as well, The Tobacco Road. He also wrote a lot of other, um, he wrote Keys to the Kingdom, which is one that we, we've discussed, Matt. And he also wrote, he, he wrote right up in, into the 1960s. So he had a very long and varied career. The cinematographer is one of Matt's favourite people, Greg Toland, who was the yep. cinematographer on Citizen Kane. And you can kind of that beautiful, the whole film is just very beautiful looking and produced by the great Daryl F. Sinuck, starring Henry Fonda and Jane Darnell and John Carradine from the famous Carradine family. So the story is quite a long sweeping story, but just a, a basic synopsis for the audience here. The Jode family who live in Oklahoma lose their farm in the Great Depression. And then obviously in some of the things that Matt talked about with the Dust Bowl and the issues with the agricultural economy there, they travel to California as migrant workers and their journey is hard and fraught with failure and tragedy. They do arrive in California where they see kind of the best of things and the worst of things as well. So what was your overall thoughts on the film, Matt? Well, particularly this work of John uh, for John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath is a fair bit different from a lot of styles that we've seen in many other films we re we've reviewed because, particularly because we focused on a lot of um, uh, crime and suspense stories, uh, mm -hmm. much of the cinematography has had a much more uh, German influence uh, that was developed in the beginning of the century, so known for a lot of sharp angles and compressed atmosphere with small artificial sets, whereas John Ford, he was all about taking it out into the wide open. He loved huge mm -hmm. spaces, taking full advantage of the width of the frame and uh, leaving uh, nothing hidden. He'd go into, on, on set into great natural valleys. And so that's quite a different atmosphere from a lot of the other films we've seen. And like that opening where you have Henry Fonda with his footsteps coming in so loud as he walks along a, a large field, it's quite hypnotizing, I find. Yeah, it's, I mean, the film was visually very beautiful. And I was reading somewhere that, um, the way that the film distinguished itself from the book was that the visual imagery was to show the Jodes as a family unit. So you, you saw them in all these great visual scenes all together in their rickety old car that they were, although having a car back then was still quite a, a good thing to have. I can't imagine everyone would have had a car back then, whereas the novel really focuses on the themes of the man joined with the land. And I think they really did nail that visual imagery because it is, even though it's in black and white, like the, the depth and the shapes and everything that you get to see in the film is really quite beautiful, but that it, remind, it did remind me a lot of Citizen Kane in that regard. Yeah, and your point about the car is... Uh something I noticed as well is that apart from that old beat up truck they're traveling in, you could think it may as well be a biblical story uh, without it, where they're trying to cross the desert. 
Yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, really, and when the film was made, it was only sort of 10 years or so on from the Great Depression. It wasn't like it was made 50 years after this this event happened in American history. It was actually really close to when it happened. They weren't that far removed and they were going into the war and all other sorts of things. So it was quite a turbulent era when, um, when the film was made. Uh, and so I was just reading about a few of the differences between the book and the film. The, the book is a lot more, um, I guess you'd say, many more bad things happen to the Jode family in the book and without giving anything away to the audience too much, uh, that the book finishes off on rather a down note where the family is kind of separated and they kind of fall apart, whereas in the film they did change that for the narrative purposes. They get to this farming camp when the, the family eventually does get to California, they get to one camp, they have to move on from there and then they eventually get to a government-run agricultural camp and they're able for the first time to have bathrooms, a proper place to sort of eat, places to stay, which is in stark contrast from where they were before. It, and even though they end up leaving there eventually, it does, and, and Henry Fonda's character goes off in search of his own sort of social justice that he wants to pursue after all the many troubles he's had in his life, um, it ends on a high note. It's a good thing, whereas, I, whereas from what I read, the book doesn't, doesn't actually. But I'm glad they did that to the film. It's good to have them on that high note. Yeah, well, a film has to have certain uh, narrative flow, uh, otherwise it sort of doesn't uh, work as well. I did think it got a little bit complicated when they tried introducing a, a red gang that was trying to infiltrate the camp, and if that was partially trying to deal with politics of the time, it's a. am still having a bit of trouble working out that part of the plot in, in my head, and that's partially why I have issue when... Uh, sometimes filmmakers try uh, then and now try and involve too much of personal politics in uh, a mm. film instead of trying to I, li I like to think that a film I make would uh, be able to be uh, view viewed uh, without confusion in uh, 10 or 20 or 50 years time and not be tied to the year that it was made yeah, um, I think from what I was reading, the novel had a lot more left-wing ideology in it. Mm. Uh, and so when uh, Ford and Zanuck were sort of tied to the project, a lot of people thought, at least in the film industry, thought that they were far too conservative to make this film. So that's perhaps why they put some of the changes into it that they did because I think the book is a lot more hard-hitting and it makes its sort of stance on certain issues a lot clearer but, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I thought the film was okay. I liked it. I didn't love, love it, but I, I did like it. Yeah, I thought the, the the visuals were beautiful and it hit you on a sort of really human note. I mean, I, I, I'm not so... I, I found the character development during up to the first 90% uh, of the film and some of the speeches, toward, which was quite common at the time towards the end is sort of um don't do as much for me as the experience they live through but i think it certainly yeah. deserves its masterpiece status yeah it, it does i can understand why it's a much revered and loved film i really i mean the part of the film that i really enjoyed is when they eventually got to that other camp and they sort of saw a few of the other better things in life and they you know, had just despite everything that they'd been through, they had sort of survived it. So that was kind of the payoff for me. That was the sort of the ending of the film where they were going to go on and do some other things. And apparently, there is a sequel 
uh, to it. So, which might be interesting to check out, as that was also made into a film as well. So, uh, John hit, Ford actually won. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and it does hit on a, a lot of the problems that a lot of uh, American industries, because they're often seems to be this assumption of America being a sort of a middle-class paradise, uh, which is a problem even now, but they have had a long history of a lot of large farm and mining and factory sites uh, really taking advantage of their uh, workers. Uh, For example, the expression, I owe my soul to the company store, goes back to when you had uh, sort of uh, mining and farming camps where the only store around was the company provided one and you were actually mm-hmm. paid just in tokens for that store and quite often you could end up being in debt to the store. Uh, yes. So on, with and owing money that isn't technically usable anywhere else anyway. It was a, yes. a sort of feudalism without being feudalism. Yeah, yeah, it's actually hard to believe. Like a lot of people... You know, and I'm sure even in our own country, if we were to research the history, there's probably things like that that went on here as well. And, yeah, it's hard to believe that these sorts of things actually went on in in all Western countries at one point or another and still to certain degrees do today. There are still rural farming communities, mining communities that still suffer from these issues that they were suffering with all the way back then. So John Ford was, um, he won an Academy Award for this. And actually, Jane Darnell, who played Marjo, she won an Academy Award as well. And I thought she was great. I love that little speech yeah. that she gave at the end about we the people and we'll keep on going. And I think that's actually true for today's <laughs> for today's mindset as well. I hope it is too. So yeah, I did. I did like the movie. I was glad to see it. It's probably not one of my favourite favourites, but I, I did enjoy it nevertheless. Yeah, and it also. Looking at Greg Tolan's cinematography, it also shows some of the innovations he had on other, perhaps more indoor works like Kane, uh, Citizen Kane, where we see the full breadth of the American landscape put before the lens, and his innovation was showing, or his skill was showing that an artificial environment, an indoor environment, can be just as panoramic from a technical point of view. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I think I just, I, I mean, the film was just absolutely stunningly beautiful. Uh, and, you know, Henry Fonda it was just Henry Fonda in the film, but he, you know, it worked well. But, you know, he'd just made uh, Young Mr. Lincoln and then he kind of went straight into this with John Ford again. So they obviously had a good working relationship. So we'll move on to our next um, Steinbeck film that we're going to be discussing today, the very famous East of Eden, which was made in 1955, directed by the great Elia Kazan, written by Paul Osborne, Uh, so starring James Dean, Julie Harris, Raymond Massey and Richard Davalos, who played um, James Dean's brother in the film. So this is based on John Steinbeck's novel East of Eden, but part of that novel so it's a multi-generational work of fiction east of eden and this is based on the last quarter or so the film is based on the last quarter or so of the book so just briefly two brothers cal and aaron buy for their father's attention and also for abra who's the affections of her who's aaron's girlfriend so it's a family drama um it's a multi-generational sort of you know in the book their ancestors are set up doing different things and then it finally comes down to them but we only see this part of the family in the film uh what were your thoughts on this one matt this was a long time coming for both of us yeah well 
it may be a drama about a family, but it is by no means a family movie because this family sets out to almost destroy each other. Uh, yes. I thought it was a, a very beautiful. I liked the the color in the cinemascope, and you could tell that the director um, Kazan was using it to his full advantage with scenes like a, a train moving across a, a mountain valley and other such uh, epic scenes. The okay. Even if it doesn't explicitly mention um, the religious leanings of the father and the family, it's obvious that these characters are not so much uh, uh, mere mortals, but they do represent uh, almost uh, biblical metaphors of the... Uh, there's a direct reference to Cain and Abel and the the purest son and the impurest uh, son being for the affections of the father. Yes. And I found uh, James Dean, he's... Uh, f- uh, now, that is the uh, first uh, film I've seen of his so far, but he certainly fully deserves his reputation. And it was really scary and sad to read about how intensely methodic um, his process of bringing uh, emotion to the screen was like it could get very intense on on screen and off uh, for better or for better or worse uh, for the actor but it was quite powerful at times yes um so i guess the scene that i was reading about also where he used that in the scene and they decided to keep it was the part where his character cal uh, is speaking to his dad about some money he wanted to give him and the father sort of rejects it. And then in the original script it called for him to sort of turn away from his father, but in they kept shooting and kept it in the film. James Dean actually tried to go up and embrace Raymond Massey, who was playing his father, and Raymond Massey was like, uh, this isn't really in the script, and he just had to go along with it and they decided to keep it. Um I have to admit I'm a bit different. I'm not really a fan of the James Dean School of Acting because I I only have a bit of knowledge on him. But it seems like he was just playing another variation of himself because everything I've read about him, he was like that in real life as well. And I suppose for me I want to see people playing things that are very different to them. I mean, even if there's parts of them in it, I I don't want to see someone walking off the set and going onto the set and they're just doing the same thing and then they walk off and they're the same way. It's not really my cup of tea, but I can understand the appeal of it, if that makes sense. I would never um, expect another actor to go through things. And then even now we have tragedies of um, actors like Heath Ledger who've um, endangered themselves uh, for a... Uh, no good re- reason to become yeah. part of the character. And that part of that is a, a gross uh, misunderstanding of method acting that was going around Hollywood at the time because it began as um, effectively uh, the research of a man called Stanislavski who was trying to almost uh, scientifically formulate what goes behind a good performance. And yes. like I took some classes uh, for a while with a Australian a- uh, actress who is... Uh, uh, trained in um, the original Stanislavski methods and basically Hollywood had a lot of um, sham psychologists coming about in the late 30s and 40s who were sort of taking loose interpretations of Stanislavski's research and were uh, saying to people that they basically had to enter these uh, very 
dangerous um, psycho- psychological um, limits uh, to fulfill a role. And the fact is, is that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. That's that's not yeah. the point of um, uh, what acting in theatre is. It's you're uh, you're there to act a role. You're not you're not that's there right. to uh, force yourself into a breakdown. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of because even if James Dean hadn't have passed away tragically in the car accident, I think we kind of already know the way his life would have probably gone, given the way he yeah. was. And I sort of see him turning into a sort of tragic Montgomery Clift character. And actually, Montgomery Clift was actually considered for the for for the role in the film. He was a bit old yeah, at the time. Yeah, just so. years too old. Yeah, so um, as well as Marlon Brando and and he was of that ilk as well. And it's not, I'm not saying it's bad, but I want to see, I like to see actors who are one thing in their own lives, who are really down to earth, really together, and then they're able to come onto the screen or the stage or the TV screen and put in these really amazing, very different and varied performers because that's their job. And then they leave it on the set and then they go home there's certain actors who are very famous in Hollywood now. They're all sort of getting into their late 70s, early 80s. All were very famous in the 1970s. And to me, this group of actors, all they do is just play the same thing over and over again. And I haven't seen Giant and I haven't seen um, Rebel Without a Cause, but I'm curious to see them. But it just, I, I didn't really enjoy James Dean in this film because it was like, I think I'm not saying I don't know if I'm seeing someone acting here or just playing themselves or and it just you know I actually I don't know I I I I like to imagine somebody else playing that role and seeing what they could do with it but I'm not saying it's bad it's just not my cup of tea so I think it it's relates to what you're saying You need to have that balance where you have the acting on the surface where you're pro- projecting that facade you have that and being able to connect with that emotional core and or at least um being able to uh, s- simulate and uh marry marry those two halves and yes. this is a constant debate that will go on forever and ever and to put it in a more colloquial terms there's there, there is this famous debate that Lawrence Olivia had with Dustin Hoffman when they were making a marathon man together mm-hmm. and when um Dustin Hoffman who was uh, needing to get into a pant after a run would literally uh, jog for a mile in a circle so he was really huffing and puffing uh, when he came into the frame and Olivia mm-hmm. who was of the old Shakespearean acting school was uh, said simply wouldn't it be easier just to try acting? <laughs> I agree. And actually, the, the the group of actors I was referencing, Dustin Hoffman is one of those. And it's, look, it's, in certain things, you know, without getting too far away from East of Eden, in certain things, uh, some of these actors are really appropriate for the roles. But when you actually see the course of their work, I remember reading someone's review of Rain Man, which is a film that Dustin Hoffman did with Tom Cruise. And and I actually like Rain Man because I like all the quips and all that in it, but it is exhausting watching Dustin Hoffman in that film because he's acting, acting, acting the whole time. And I get it. He's playing a man with severe autism and he's an autistic savant and all that stuff. I get it. But it's just, it is exhausting watching him do it. 
and it's it's like you still could have done that without being so over the top I feel but that's he's come from that group of actors but actually Julie Harris who played Abra the female lead in East of Eden she was a method actor as well she was actually one of the few trained Hollywood because she'd done so much work on the stage before going to Hollywood and I just feel for her maybe she used it a bit better because I don't want to bring up soap operas again but I'm actually watching Dallas's sister show at the moment Not Slanting and Julie Harris spent the the last part of her career as a TV star on Not Landing in the 1980s playing one of the main characters' mothers. And she was fantastic. She was method acting in that, playing this southern trashy singer who had a, was washed up and didn't have much of a career and abandoned her daughter and everything. And she was absolutely fantastic in that role. And it just goes to show you that you can be a method actor, you can get yourself into the role, but you can also have that boundary where you're like, yeah, it's a job and I'm an actor and, and that's it sort of thing. So um, just, you know, when I saw Julie Harris in East of Eden, I'm like, where do I know this person from? And I was like, oh, my God, that's Lily May out of Knott's Landing and I've just been watching it. So that was quite um, hilarious. But, yeah, I mean, it did say that Kazan did allow Dean to play the role with his own bodily gestures and it did. And apparently John Steinbeck saw the film and he, he liked it. He liked what they did with the part of the book that they had turned in. I just wanted, before we leave this one, Matt, I just wanted to ask you a bit more about Cinemascope. So Cinemascope was a type of lens that they used and I was reading that that's why they decided, you know, in certain scenes in the film they tilted the camera a yeah. certain way. Do you know much more about that? I was sort of interested and maybe the audience would be interested to learn a bit more about that. Well, um, I'm not an expert on Cinemascope. I know they uh, weren't using it for that long, but effectively it was one of various means to uh, greatly expand the width of um, the, the frame. Uh, so widescreen, so to show the film in widescreen sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, so, uh, so it's getting towards what we know, uh, see now in films like uh, with VMAX and IMAX and everything. Oh, right, okay, um, yep. Widescreen. Now... Whenever you're, this actually goes back into a bit of a joke that I think it was Selznick made that uh, twice the picture size simply just makes a bad movie twice as bad. <laughs> and whenever you're increasing the visual space to work in, it's often uh, not necessarily uh, just uh, making uh, the picture you're used to bigger, but you're having to deal with. Um, optical compromises and the big problem that Kazan had was uh, he was uh, told to have the actors I think at least six feet away from the lens which yeah. is um would be fine for group shots uh, or, or medium shots but it can be a bit problematic when you're wanting to do more emotional scenes and if you so he did some experiments and would bring you towards uh, the actors closer, uh, and in these experiments you have some of the issue of um, the edges of the frame becoming a bit warped and out of angle, and to compensate for that, the uh, to compensate for for that sometimes in a few scenes particularly where um james dean is having the bible reading and we have these unusual ceiling angles and they're not apparently mm -hmm. uh, uh, made linear to any discernible object uh, and that was to 
sort of amplify the exaggeration. Now, I personally found uh, some of the strange camera angles they were using the a bit a little bit annoying. They didn't necessarily. Yeah. It's 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 not like in a lot of early German cinema, like uh, the camera of Dr. Caligari, where they used it to enhance certain points. It's a it just didn't uh, have that same effect on me. So, and unfortunately, that was um a way they were dealing with an optical compromise they uh, couldn't get around. There were other times when the cinemascope was used beautifully, like we mentioned before with um the trains uh, moving across the uh, the landscape, and uh, I think. Uh, I think Hello Dolly might have been done in Cinemascope, and that's where Cinemascope was really excellent, like uh, filling out space with lots of dancing and uh, yeah, and landscapes. So that type of film would lend itself, whereas this is sort of like it needs to be a bit of a close-up drama as well on the characters, and maybe it wasn't. Yeah, it was unusual because I had this contradictory feeling throughout the film because it was such a... Uh, dramatic biblical piece and yet so much of the the wide spacing and the bright colors made me think of a lot of disney films of the time that were done with um sort of half real half real footage and half animation uh, and because i was almost feeling like uh, uh james dean was also almost playing a more adult version of male version of pollyanna yeah, yeah, it's just yeah, i mean i i, I thought the film was fine. I i you know, i appreciated it for what it was. But I think I'm not sure. I, I am curious to see Giant, and I'm um, being a fan of Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson, and I would like to see Rebel Without a Cause because you know that's his sort of the main work that he's known for. And he did do a lot of other TV shows, and he was training in theatre and other things before the accident happened. So I mean, he's known for these three big films that he did, but he also did a lot of episodic TV work as well. And he was training in a theatre. So who knows? I mean, he might have just kind of learned to take a step back and he might have been fine and lived a long life. But, you know, sometimes people like that, I just saw him maybe going the same way as Montgomery Clift. I just sort of had that feeling that just with the way he approached his work and everything, and you referenced Heath Ledger and what happened to him was extremely tragic as well. Obviously, he was an Australian actor, so we're both very familiar with him. But, uh, I mean, that, you know, that, what happened to him? Though. Uh, because he uh, did become Ledger did become interested in um, drug use because of the role he was in. Uh, James Dean was um, a reckless car accident. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, yeah. So I mean, I'm glad that we got to watch these films. Definitely things that we wanted to watch and tick off our proverbial film bucket list, as Matt was talking about before. So we recommend just go out and have a look at them or look at the novel. or And there's even with these sorts of things, there's lots of interesting documentaries about them, the era that they were made, you know, things to do with CinemaScope, the way that they were shot. I mean, in both films, I think certain things worked really well. Other things maybe took you a bit too far away from the story. Maybe there were a few issues in the script. Some of this, you know, I think both of the films could have been a bit shorter and the script could have been a bit more on point, like getting you towards the destination a bit quicker and cutting out some superfluous stuff. But then other people love all that extra stuff that people can bring into films and extra conversations the characters have. So that's kind of my thoughts, Matt. Anything that you'd like to say finally before we introduce the next two films? Oh, just uh, something to consider with the CinemaScope still is the, in terms of the picture that had to be linked with what you were viewing to the camera, um, this also features into how we interpret a lot of Hitchcock's later work because people often in the critic circles like to talk about 
the rear projection that uh, Hitchcock used and thought that was a way of inserting his artistic signature into it. And the fact is that he actually had to use that a lot of the time because of the similar optical problems that Kazan had in this film where to get basically the actors and the background in, in the right level of focus without its distortion, uh, that reprojection. So for example, having a, a landscape moving on a projector screen uh, and so forth were ways of dealing with the footage. And so that's uh, when looking at a, a director's style, we do need to consider often the technological impacts that they have to deal with alongside their their emotional ones, how they think with their heart as well. But this yes, really brings true. to the point that what also in tying in what we're talking about with method acting is that an actor is an actor, but they are only purely working on their own on the stage. When they're in a film, they are mm-hmm. working in collaboration with the camera. The camera is this strange mystical body with its own rules that you have to follow mm-hmm. and work with it in different ways to get the best impact, which is how method acting, at least in um, how it's been distorted uh, at some points in history, needs to be sometimes brought a step back and brought into a better better linkage and uh, be a bit more realistic of um, how to get that best performance. And it's yeah, a very definitely. complex debate. Yeah, it is. And it's and everyone has their own opinions and, and um you know, James Dean obviously deserves his place in cinematic history. He was a very influential character and lived a very fast and, and young and very tragic life. So it was good to see both of these films. So the next two um uh, a bit more of Matt's specialty, uh, one he a, a genre of classic films that he likes a lot, and I haven't really explored much of it, so I'm excited to do this. So the, the next two on uh, <laughs> the next two on our docket, as such, is uh, the 1944 noir classic Double Indemnity, directed by the great Billy Wilder, starring Barbara Stanwyck uh, and Fred McMurray. And Fred McMurray went on to do a lot of like um, family oriented television show so it'll be interesting for me to see him in this um in this very famous film that he uh, did in the 1940s and then the next one we're doing is two years later 1946 the big sleep which was directed by howard Hawke, starring the great loved couple of all time humphrey bogart and lauren bacall and i'm really looking forward to these two matt so thanks for the suggestions there oh you're welcome that's great. Well, we really appreciate you guys uh, with us this week. Hope everyone's doing well out there, wherever you are. And uh, to finish off today, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. So you take care of yourself and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you. Bye.